Expedition 44 here again with Matt and Ryan. We are way deep in a series on the church right now. This is officially episode 16, although I didn't count a couple little excursions along yeah. the way. We had a conversations. Awesome conversation with uh, Mr. Gaddy last yep. time. And then Frank Viola before that. Yep. Two, two great conversations if you haven't watched those because they weren't necessarily church series, but they sort of were. They tie in. They tie in. You should watch that, especially the last one with Gaddy. It was a little bit different than our normal conversation, but particularly towards the end of the interview. It gets re actually really into the church. Yeah. And so, so it's worth watching even if that's not your normal flavor. But today we are officially on part 16 of the church and we are talking about apostles. Yeah. So over the next few episodes, I think we're going to be talking about what's usually titled as the fivefold giftings or the fivefold ministry. Um, and so traditionally these um, are taken as. Uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 11, which are the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd or pastor, and the teacher. Now, these are called the fivefold ministry of the church, and you've, I'm sure you've heard of it, and you never really thought much of it. And Matt and I typically don't necessarily like any systems unless they're clearly put mm -hmm. down in the Bible. And this seems to be more of a system of the church or I might even say the worldly church than it really is in the Bible. If, if, if the Bible really wanted this five-fold ministry, I think they would have written differently about it. Yeah. And so we're not anti-five-fold gifting, but we don't like the fact that it's someplace we've turned them from simple five giftings to an office. To an office. Yeah. The other thing we're not really crazy about, this is kind of a fireside conversation before we get started. The other thing we're not crazy about is that anytime you emphasize one thing over another in scripture, it seems like you're twisting or turning things to do what you want to do with them. And this is an example of that, is that if you're going to emphasize the five gifts here, you're missing on a lot of uh, equal representation of mm -hmm. gifting in the rest of the Bible, at least another 15 to 20 gifts and maybe yeah. a whole lot more besides that. Yeah, so let's just read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn to them there and I'll read it here and then we'll kind of dive into that a little bit before we get into what we're going to talk about today is apostleship. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors or shepherds there and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and the mature man to the measure of the stature which belong to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed um, here and there by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ, whom the whole body being fitted and held together by every joint uh, supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, houses growth of the body and the building up of itself in love. So I think if we're going to be unbiased, we look at this and we say, what's special about these five gifts? Because there's a whole lot more gifts. You get into 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you're, mm -hmm. you're gonna, the two 12s, you're gonna see a lot more gifts. Why in Ephesians, does it pretty much just kind of outline these five? And what's happened is because Ephesians 
kind of just outlines the five traditionally in church that's turned this into an office. Mm -hmm. And the problem with turning, well, there's a lot of problems yeah. with turning it into the office, and we're going to touch on some of these, but the problem with really turning it into an office is that you're going to start getting into hierarchy and ranking and all kinds of other things like that, rather than an idea of servanthood in the way that the gifts are used. Yeah, um, so we talked about, um, you just mentioned 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, the two 12s. So in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the gifts as functions, as an analogy of the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. So each gift within the body, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, they're all considered equal. Now, we do a lot of hot subjects. We never shy away from difficult mm -hmm. things. We like to, you know, not only talk about the hot sub subjects, but also kind of look at them from every different perspective, uncover every rock. We're not necessarily afraid to have any conversation. Mm -hmm. And so to some people, this is also a hot topic because it can be an abused subject. Yeah, um, so much throughout, I guess, modern church, especially more, I guess you could say, charismatic theology. Yeah. Um, you get these five gifts elevated over the other 20, 20-something yeah. gifts, yeah. whatever, how many, ever many gifts you want to count right. in, in the Bible. You, you see these as the pinnacle of what you should strive for, or the ones that rule over the other giftings. And unfortunately, a lot of, uh, kind of a hot topic in churches lately is narcissism. You, mm -hmm. you see it a lot. You see, you know, kind of be, people being steamrolled, particularly a lot of women, you know, in mm -hmm. ministry have been steamrolled that way and everything else. But this is why it's been abusive. So we could go through the list of all the church abuse cases in the last you know five to ten years and a lot of them would come back to kind of putting these offices on a kingship level yeah and right before our video here you and i had a long conversation about the southern baptist convention yeah um you're ordained in the free will baptist yep. convention um i'm going to one of our friends church in houston who's part of the sbc and my wife and I are ministering there this coming weekend and doing leading worship. And they're friends from who lived up here in Wisconsin yep. and got transferred down there for their job. And um, they just kicked out their pastor because he was being abusive and he was a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of falls under some of the ideals of the apostle. The apest is yeah. how Alan Hirsch says it. A for apostle, P for prophet, E for evangelist, S for shepherd, T for teacher. Apest, we might use that acronym here. But that whole mindset of those five gifts are above everybody else in the church. And it's it's kind of this idea that they outrank it or give them a, almost like spiritual superpowers that nobody else mm -hmm. has. And Matt and I, as you know, we're really big into the royal priesthood of believers mm -hmm. that we're, we're all called similarly or the same or yeah. things like that. And that when we put somebody in charge like Israel did with the king, that's the world's ways. That's not God's ideal. We should be getting away from those things, not working in the way that the world works. We, we don't need a CEO or a commander of our church. Jesus is the only head, the only king of the church. Yeah, and so there's other words that are thrown around, such as new apostolic reformation and things yeah. like that, of um, that the office of apostle has been resurrected or things like that. And 
we believe that truly defined the opposite of apostle as we go through this has always been there. Yeah. Um, but the way that often some denominations, such as not NAR or other apostolic denominations who will claim themselves as apostle and then assert their theo um, their authority over certain churches yeah. is antichrist. Right. So when we're looking at apostle and we're just sticking to exegesis, what is an mm -hmm. apostle in the Bible? That's really where we're going today. So you're going to see the word apostle, I'll say, abused in churches all over the place. And we've what we've said about it is really all we're going to say about it. Yeah. What the rest of the video is doing is saying we want to look at what the Bible biblically mm -hmm. says the gifting of an apostle, yeah. the role of an apostle is. So let's just start that conversation, yeah. Matt. What is an apostle according to the scripture? So apostle simply means in Greek, a sent one. They were ambassadors, they were emissaries, they were ones who carried teachings and messages about a king or basically a religious leader. Hold on, stop, time out. Isn't that what every person is as the royal priesthood of believers? Aren't we all called to be ambassadors, emissaries, representatives of the king? I would say yes, but I think that there's some more that we can dive into that have distinctive giftings within this, which we'll dive into throughout the text that we're gonna examine. But I think that overall, that we are all ambassadors in some way, shape, yes. or form at a foundational level. So in order to get this right, you have to step out of your paradigm of what you think an apostle is and come back to the idea of gifting. Let this be surrounded by your definition of a gifting. So I have several different gifts. One place I am not very gifted in is uh, my compassion. That's my prayer gift, that I pray for compassion because normally I'm just... My normal makeup isn't very compassionate. I'm more of thinking like people just need to get, just need to get there, you know? Mm -hmm. Like let's let's get on board. And so so I believe I have a gift of compassion, but it's not very high. When I was a kid playing with transformers on the back, they have a chart of, you know, are you strong, are you smart, all this mm -hmm. stuff. So if we had a spiritual gift chart like that, my compassion bar would be way down here. However, my apostle bar would be way up here. And so that's one of personally my higher giftings is on that one. Mm -hmm. um, now it's interesting because when we read it, we often think of apostles as missionaries that go out and evangelize. And if you know me, you go, well, you're not yeah, really an evangelist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I separate that. I actually say, well, my spiritual gifting of evangelism is down here. So it's going to get interesting of why I consider my apostle gifting up here, but my evangelism yeah, gifting down here. Yeah, often conflate evangelism and apostleship. Yes. We see Paul sent on missionary journeys, and we also often think as missionaries simply as evangelists. Right. But it's not the case in the Bible. And we're going to go through that over the next four or five episodes where we dig into each of these five giftings. And so... As we, as we keep going here with apostle, apostle was not necessarily a religious word in the ancient world. So people don't like this sometimes when we start having theological conversations of the Bible, but everybody kind of thinks that these are Christian words, that there's that every gifting, everything started yeah, in the it's Bible. It's a religious word. And that's not the case with this one. So no. we've talked about that with ecclesia or the assembly, that there are all kinds yeah. of assemblies, and actually yes. it's probably less religious yeah. than more religious. It's, it's linked to the view of what the assembly was in Antioch. Yes. And, and the democratic view of 
people coming forth from the city to meet and 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 meet face to face about the issues. So, when you look at the word apostle, when Jesus was talking about apostle, or Paul was using the term apostle, they would have already had an understanding of what the word apostle meant in the rest of the mm -hmm. world for a long time. It was kind of the same thing as disciple is another one, Talmudim in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So they had disciples following, yet Jesus is going to say, my definition of a disciple is slightly different than the world's definition of a disciple. There could be a little bit of that going on with apostle, that it's in a borrowed word, but then the scriptural connotation of apostle may or may not deem a little bit slightly different than what the world had known an apostle of until that time. Yeah, so let's go back to the Greco-Roman world. So Caesar had apostles, and they were sent around Rome to the rest of the empire, to the conquered regions, in order to spread the Roman culture and the Roman way of life. We also had this under Alexander the Great, yeah. where he would send out people to Hellenize the world, bring them into Greek culture. So an apostle was someone who went and who has spread a message to spread a way of life to outside communities that were outside the empire to bring them into the way of that kingdom. Yeah. So sometimes you want to look at what these New Testament Greek words were and what words in Hebrew would have replaced those so that we could have kind of gotten an idea of in the ancient world, where did they get the definition of this word? And mm -hmm. so sometimes the Septuagint helps us with that, kind of connect the Hebrew and the Greek words. But when you get into Hebrew, the word that typically uh, represents this way of thinking is shaliah or shaluah, shaliach, that kind of thinking. And that, that simply just means representative. It could have been power, it could have been authority, there could have been legal connotations going on. So in traditional Judaism, you're going to have somebody that is re uh, representative of somebody else, usually endowed to make their decisions or carry them out. And so this is where we come back to royal priesthood of believers that started in an ancient context is that you were representative of somebody. And that's kind of where you get into these statues and the idols um, where when you would enter a land, you would see kind of signposts. And, and it might be a statue of the king saying this is the person here. And then there also might be a statue right next to it of the, the god. god. Yeah, the idol right next to it. Those were separate though, but it showed you who was representative of the land. And so when God comes to Israel, he's basically calling, what he's asking for is representatives to bear his image. And so this is all, we talk about this so much. Mm -hmm. So I feel like if you're hearing this, I'm a broken record right now, but, you, but you're getting this over and over. So it's who you represent. And so Shaliach language and apostle language in the New Testament goes back to image bearing language. It's who's being represented. But in the ancient world, there's more than just a little image bearing, it's actually the authority that you bear as yeah. well. And so it's even one step further than what everybody else had because as Matt identified, when somebody's going out to collect a temple tax or something like that, they actually have some authority. They can take money from people. They could even probably imprison them in some places. And so this gets a little interesting because many people believe that Paul was a shaliach of Rome. And so you start, and where do we get this word? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 24. It's it's the exact word when uh, um, there's a servant, a shaliach, sent by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. And 
he, he's representative of him to actually choose, pay for, make a deal, covenant to bring that wife in. And so that's the first place in the Bible where we get this, but it's all over the Bible. It's also all over the rest of the ancient world. So a delegate is mentioned in the Talmud as well. It's a kind of, in, in this way, it's a, a Shaluach Mizwah, which is kind of a philanthropic representation. There's also other places, a Gebez which was showing, and this one I, I wanted to bring out because it's going to be representation in pairs. So in the Old Testament, there's something going on where a shaliach is usually represented in pairs, and that's going to get important to this conversation a little bit yeah, later. We'll get into that in a little bit. Yep. And so there's kind of this uh, twofold thing that represents people. And so I'm just going to touch on Paul, and I don't want to spend a lot here because this is a very vague subject. We just whether you're in the Bible or you go into extra biblical material, there's not a lot here. The only one we really have, and I'm fortunate that it's Josephus because that's the one historian normal people kind of know about, yeah. but Josephus makes a couple uh, references here, but Saul gets really interesting. So he studied under uh, Gamaliel, which you probably know, an esteemed rabbi at the time, but he was... Jewish yet had Roman citizenship, which was not that normal for the day. Mm -hmm. And so his parents would have had to have bought into this or something else. And you might remember he was out persecuting Christians before this, and he seems to be very empowered to do that. And so a lot of historians and some theologians would believe that he was a legal shaliach of Rome and that he never gave that up. And that's why he seems to be a little bit untouchable. And you can actually even read into the lines that he was sort of playing the Roman system of traveling still in twos because a legal representative to collect temple tax that would have known him would have been traveling too. So when you see Paul walk into a town yeah. with another person, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, Paul and Silas, the town is probably wondering who he is. Is this still a representative, a legal representative of Rome? And perhaps he was, is what I'm implying. And so... It seems to me he could have been playing the system kind of both ways. Now, Matt and I are sole King Jesus guys. We don't need anything else. We don't want to be part of any other systems of the world. We just want King Jesus. And so I would, in my transparency, I would, if I were sitting here and Paul were in between us in this conversation, I would look him square in the eyes and say, why did you keep your connection or seemingly keep your connection? Yeah, and so we've kind of had this conversation with Dr. Steve Castle, who a good friend who we've come on and had a conversation about Christian nationalism, a conversation about voting. Um, I, I would, I believe, from my reading of Paul, and I'm a guy who's studied Paul deeply, is more than anybody I know, and he he would have used his citizenship to undermine Rome, not to uphold Rome, and so that's my entire paradigm of why he kept his citizenship. I'm like, you see him time and time again, like, speaking against Rome, using all of the verbiage of Roman kingship and applying it to Jesus. <laughs> so he used that, and he used it to not get killed, right. you know? And so, so further kept, the gospel, he kept, he, he kept that, basically, to, all right, if I can live another day by keeping this to further the kingdom of Jesus, then maybe I will do that. But at every corner, you would see him backhand slap Rome. <laughs> you know, every single time you could. 
So getting back into nationalism, uh, you know, when we had Steve Castle and I was kind of cute playing with my Ron Johnson hat in one hand and the 44 hat in the other hand, I personally tend to think all King Jesus, that, that if I got to pick between America and Jesus, there's, there's no, there's no, there's, there's no, no thing in there to the point that I'm even hesitant in wanting to represent America. Even though I'm American, I'm a citizen and everything else, are, have Matt and I given up our citizenship to America? No, are we going to? Probably not. So it's tough. Now, you'll notice that most of my flags are kind of 1776 flags, and so that, that's kind of just a statement of saying, like, I don't really like a lot about America. I, I think we're heading in the wrong direction. We're, we're, it came out in our Michael Gaddy conversation. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not around, as far as Christianity goes, to, to, in our country, to bring God more into the center. Now, if that changed... I might change my viewpoint on that. But anyway, that's my question with Paul here. And I believe that he actually was incredibly close to where Matt and I stand on yeah. this topic. So I think if he was here, he would be, he would probably be Absent. similar sentiments. Interacting yeah. of, oh yeah, Rome's not my friend, and mm -hmm. but but I'm I'm working the system, so to speak, for the gospel. So all that said, I thought I would interject that little squirrel moment of ancient Judaism because it is it ties very much into apostleship yes so let's keep going the next uh, thing that we want to look at is Jesus's mission with his apostles and so Matthew 28 18 through 20 I'll read this is uh, one of the, the few key verses we're gonna hit and again you're gonna find out a lot of people are surprised when we kind of don't leave any rock unturned this is another one where you would think there would be a whole lot more passages out there, but we're going to hit the main ones. So this is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I hardly needed to read that mm -hmm. because knows it. you all know it is a great commission and most of you probably have it memorized. However, there are so many different thoughts on what the great commission is and means. Yeah, so um, we need to ask, who is this great commission given to in the context? And this is where Matt and I haven't quite figured it out and we actually kind of see perhaps differently in it. Mm -hmm. So Matt, what's your take? So, I think that part of it is the immediate audience of this Great Commission is the 11 disciples at this time that he's sending out, giving them the task to make disciples. And I know some have taken this as the mission of every individual Christian, but there's good cases that really can be made. This was only given to the 11 um, with the gift of apostleship here, and possibly every other person who has this gift of apostling afterwards. So to be clear, when we're reading the context and you're getting theologically deep in it, you have to ask the question... Who's the audience? Who's the audience? Mm -hmm. Who is this written to and who can claim this? And so from Matt's perspective, he's saying maybe this is just written for those who have the gifts of apostles that are in the immediate context. Now, I look at it and I say... That could be. I'm not necessarily yeah. going to fight that. I don't have a problem if the immediate context is those in the gifting of apostleship. But and I, I don't, don't have a problem with Brian's view either. <laughs> yeah. so. But I also take that and I say, even if that was the original context, I also think in the same way that every Christian should pray or esteem to have all the gifts mm -hmm. that we should all affirm here. Mm -hmm. And so even if I don't have the gift 
of apostleship, or some people might even branch into gifts of evangelism here, which I personally don't go there, but yeah. you see a lot of people doing that. Yeah, um, we'd separate those two. We would. I yeah. mean, yes, and we'll get into that. And more. so. When I look at this, I say it could be just written to the 11, and I'm not going to fight strongly on that if that's what you think or you feel like the scriptures would better deem, because as Matt said, there is actually a really good argument to go that way. Yeah, and I would, I would say that going along with your view, if we could combine both our views and say that this is the seeds of that. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, in, in my way of thinking, that everybody should esteem all the gifts. They shouldn't hold any higher than the rest. And so when we talk about apostleship, are we going to esteem to do that? Now, it does change the, the conversation a little bit if you insert the word only. And again, mm -hmm. this is a good conversation. Yeah. Is it only for the context of those original apostles? Mm -hmm. And so that changes the conversation a little more. I actually think that's a hair weaker argument, but it's still a good argument worth having. And we don't, that's not really what this film is about, yeah. but it's worth saying. So maybe we'll come back to this subject and make another film just on that later. But today we're just kind of holding it yeah, there. I think John Walton's popular quote is the Bible was written for us and not to us comes in here. This is, this is for us, so we need to extract out of it what we do. It's the original audience, yes, was the 12. It could apply to those with apostolic gifts. But like you said all have some portion of all the gifts within them yeah so this is the when you say make disciples of all nations this is where it gets conflated is could 11 people possibly make disciples of all nations or do they need the seed to continue populating in order to extend that call yeah. and a lot of times when we see that he says nations here which is very similar to what we get the word gentiles from yeah. which talks about people often we say at least there's people who um will think of all right this is a mandate to take over the kingdoms of the right, world right. you know and we say uh, no this is the mandate to plant a new kingdom within the kingdoms of the world yeah. and pull the people of the kingdoms of the world out of it yeah and so he doesn't use the word kingdoms here he used the words nations which is nationalities yeah and so this goes back to what we we're just talking about of you know we're in a kingdom of the united states of america we're not to be of that kingdom, so this yeah. we're ambassadors passing through. So is mm -hmm. this language where we go into the kingdom and then extract back into mm -hmm. the kingdom of God? That's where Matt and I Yeah, that's where we go. Because, I mean, people can be nationally citizens of the kingdom of America, but don't not have to be necessarily part of the kingdom of America. They can be part of the kingdom of God and not be separate from the kingdom of America. So the last question in this in this great commission calling is, how did Jesus make disciples? If he's asking his apostles or everybody at this point to go make disciples, that this is, I've said in my books and everything, that this is the preeminent call to go make disciples. So if that is what he's saying, how does he do it? Yeah, I mean, how did Jesus do it? He lived for three and a half years with his 12 and his 72. It looked like family. It doesn't necessarily look like the way we do modern church today. And Jesus said to them to make disciples. So he would have sent his 11 out with the thought of what he just did with them for the last three and a half years. Yeah. So when we look at what Jesus was doing, it looked like a home picture. It mm -hmm. looked like he was creating, he's pulling people out of their homes, leave everything on the beach, mm -hmm. don't go bury the dead. Forsake the dead. father and mother. Yep. Come into my family, be part of the family, and continue to bring others into this family. And at some point, you're going to need to 
leave this family perhaps and go start another, another family. family. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this generational idea. And so when you do that, as Matt said, there's this number of 3, 12, 72. So how do you do it? The, the recipe is you start with your three people of influence. Some of them maybe are, you know, uh, newer in faith than you. Again, I don't want to get into the hierarchy language, but perhaps newer in the faith. Less so you bring them in, you start to shepherd them. Your three eventually becomes 12, and then your 12 eventually brings other people into the fold and becomes 72. Now, the crazy thing is, is biblically we don't really have any models greater than 72. Yeah. What do, what implication does this say on the church? And I'm just going to challenge you that I feel strongly that you will not find a place in the Bible anywhere where there's a church that gets bigger than 72. It seems to be the biblical mm -hmm. recipe is once yep. you hit that number, you're supposed to go out again. Mm -hmm. And so And we'll talk about Acts 2 in a little bit. This flies in the face of all of American churchianity. Build build these kingdoms of churches, the mega churches and everything else. And I'll say Matt and I are involved in a church of I don't know how, how I, I don't even yeah so. four fifty. You might even say six hundred. It's it's a bigger church. And then we're also in a small group of the church, which you kind of call a micro church. And it's interesting that in our microchurch, we really, there aren't any issues. We all just get along. We praise Jesus together. And I think part of that is that the relationships mm -hmm. are stronger. Yep. But then when you get into the big church, and I don't want to make it sound like there's tons of issues or problems. There's a lot but, more. But there's a lot more. You see people butting heads and having disagreements and things like that. And the unity of Christ is really important in the church. He talks about it over and over and over and over. If the recipe seems to be 72 and less, I think that might mean something here. Yeah. And so when we look at kind of our modern view of church versus what we might say here, the apostolic view of planting churches, we don't see the apostles going out to plant a church, hire a pastor, build a building, but we see them going out as part of the task of teaching and teaching the way of Jesus to a small community. Yep. And then moving on. Yeah. And we'll get into some of maybe how they did this here in just a second. So this is a way of life. And so it seems like a lot of times in, and I just, I always pick on American churchianity and, you know, evangelical Christianity. But, but when I look at the big American evangelical church, it doesn't look like our main goal is to teach a Jesus way of life. In fact, a lot of times... I think we look completely opposite of the Jesus way of life. So, what can we look at in terms of what does an apostle look like? What does church planning look like? So, when the apostles are sent out and they begin churches, what do the models look like in terms of teaching the way of Jesus to other people and other cultures? There's a few different versions of this in the Bible that we get. We get the we get Jerusalem, yeah, Antioch, Antioch, Ephesians, Roman, Roman, and yeah. then you're gonna get. That's not the only churches planted. There's gonna be a handful of other ones, but these are the ones that kind we of the kind four of models. The four models. The four times we get a better look, a better painting of a picture of what it looks like. So we're gonna take those four and we're gonna talk about them and break them down. So Matt, what do we know? about Jerusalem. Yeah, so this kind of, if you read like Acts 2.14 all the way through like chapter 8, verse 3, you kind of get a better picture of this where the apostles started by like planting like one church in Jerusalem. Yeah. You get Peter on his um, 
basically day of Pentecost's proclamation of Jesus as king, and you got 3,000 people coming in, but you don't, like, you have one church, but not one gathering yeah. is kind of the, the big thing. That this is there. almost like little seeds, mm -hmm. and so, so you're going to have a, a population of Christians, and it looks like you have little pockets this way, and as they're forming, it seems like the seeds are still going out, mm -hmm. and so... What's really interesting is Jerusalem is often what we kind of refer to as the church. Yeah. I mean, it's like the church, and oh. there there isn't like this. They didn't build a temple to be the church in Jerusalem. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. So, yeah. So after a period of time, the uh, church, you know, multiplied, it transplanted, it migrated. But really, after four years of this, like seed being like planted here in Jerusalem, it. It scattered and made other churches throughout Jerusalem because of persecution. You can read about that in like Acts 8, the first eight verses there in Acts 11. So yeah, it seemed like the church had already had before it like transplanted or migrated like many years of experiencing body and church life together with the apostles before they scattered and planted more things. So the first four years came like under maybe the, the leadership or the teaching of the apostles who walked with Jesus. So it's really interesting here when we're looking at a definition of apostleship, it's going to be those that come in to start the work of the yeah, family oriented culture. culture. I wouldn't even really say church, although the church is the body of Christ, but they're creating the Jesus way of life culture. It's because I, they lived it and walked with yeah. him. And I call this a culture of discipleship. That's CTS language of that's what we're mm -hmm. trying to do is create a culture of discipleship. But it's going to be to to establish that kind of thinking. And then they're continuing to go to the next one to establish that kind of thinking somewhere else. So what does an apostle do? It shepherds or it coaches to living a lifestyle of Jesus. Yeah, and we see like in the beginning of Acts, uh, actually at the end of January, I'm going to be actually preaching a message on the Acts Church and part of our discipleship series at church um, in Acts 2.42 through the end of the chapter there where what, right when the church started like they held everything in common but they did four things they held to the apostles teachings which were living the life of Jesus yeah. it wasn't just right. passing of information back and forth they broke bread with one another they um, they held all things in common they they took care of one another there was it, it was a community where they, where they just live the life of Jesus together. So we don't see these apostles as actually running the church. No, so there's there there really isn't any hierarchy language in this. They're they're coming and establishing a way of life, and then they leave and they go do that in a different culture, and they might come back. And I like the way Matt that you put this is they might come back to water and pull up the weeds. Yeah, and so they they planted, they encouraged the churches, but they didn't live within them or run their affairs. They were available to assist with the problems. And they are available to assist with discipleship and deeper teaching and deeper bringing people into the ways of Jesus, but they weren't there as a hierarchy or the offices that ran the church. So even in the Jerusalem model, Matt and I at the beginning of this film kind of talked about different denominations and things like that. And what it looks like is people need an umbrella. They need a shepherd to shepherd. And so mm -hmm. they need to be able to look back at somebody um, whether it be elders mm -hmm. later or whether it be the apostles that planted, they need somebody to give direction occasionally or come back to water and pull weeds or something like that. 
And if we have denominations today, that seems to be what they should be doing is mm -hmm. watering and pulling up weeds. And I think that denominationally, like Matt and I, our church is totally non-denominational, no strings attached, and there's good and bad things about that. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at what's ideal, I like kind of an umbrella organization so that we have shepherds who are shepherding, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think it's important that umbrella organizations, whether you come denominations or whatever, that they stick to what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And this is kind of the thing that we talked about, maybe our intro video on church leadership about yeah. covering. Yeah. Um, covering isn't an authority thing, but it's rather a training thing. Yeah. And it's a shepherd's shepherding shepherds thing rather than this is um, the uh, the rule of law let me get you back on track kind of kind of yeah. the way of saying it. they're so. coming in to water and pull up weeds they're not coming in to put their fist down yeah. and demand everybody stay in line they're not the king they're yeah. not the magistrate yeah so there's big difference let's move on that's jerusalem now I, we started with that because in the other models you're going to see a lot of foundational things that are true in jerusalem and the true in the other models so in the other ones will kind of differentiate of how they were maybe slightly different but also the same so the next one is Antioch. Yeah, and so in Acts uh, 13, verse 1 through 20, and verse 38, we have Paul and his co-workers going out to plant churches in South Galatia in Greece in Asia Minor. Now, you alluded to this earlier, but this is typically what we refer to as Paul's missions trips. And so when I think of a mission trip, it's... I, I led mission trips for a long time. I've been to over 30 countries. I've led more mission trips than I can count. And most of these mission trips weren't at all the biblical definition of what Paul's mission trips were. So we would go out and we would paint houses. We'd build climbing walls and ropes courses, trails through woods. Sometimes we would, I was, I, I almost hate to admit it, but I was part of these evangelistic crusade movements, you know, of, of all this stuff. So that's what we think of as missions trips, but was that what, what Paul was doing at Antioch and the model that he was establishing? I would say absolutely not. So, <laughs> um, so we're not going against going out and spreading the good news of Jesus. No. But Paul's mission was to plant churches, not to get someone to pray a prayer, follow the four laws of right, the, the like spiritual laws or Romans Road, any, any of that type of stuff. So he was going out and talking about the good news of King Jesus and planting kingdom communities where he was yeah so if you're looking at Antioch and you're looking at what Paul did in Antioch it looked more like coming to Antioch and saying hey I'm gonna be having a meal at my home and inviting some people in that I'm considering making great friends with and mm -hmm. you know that understand Jesus is king or want to learn more about Jesus and king and I'm going to invite them into my home and we're going to see if they want to become part of my disciples of a Jesus culture. And you can come and listen to that. And you might say, yeah, this is what we and our family want to be part of. Or you might say, yeah, this isn't for me. And you walk away from it. Yeah, That's what we kind of get with the Antioch model. And so apostles, they walk into town. Yeah, they'd walk into town empty-handed, preach the gospel of Jesus kingship. They choose interesting. Yeah, yeah, they aren't using the Romans road or the four spiritual laws. They are gathering kingdom communities around King Jesus. They're showing them how to meet with Jesus, how to commune together, baptizing believers. Um, so they would lead these converts into showing them how to live the Jesus way. And then 
the kingdom way and they pass on the teachings of Jesus, he would usually stay with them for maybe five or six months. These apostles um, impart the culture of the Jesus community of walking with Jesus to them, and then they would leave. Yeah, They would just leave after five or six months. Now, we're kind of a little bit poking a little fun at the four spiritual laws of the Romans road. I don't think it's any secret. We don't, we don't hold really those. We don't hold those. We don't like them very much. But, but I just want to talk about that just for a second. And so the two models that we've shown you, Jerusalem and Antioch, and I'm just going to say we're going to get to the other ones, and they're going to, I'd say the same thing for them. What we see is lifestyle community. We mm-hmm. see being pulled into everyday life affairs. And I'm not just asking somebody to necessarily make a pledge of allegiance or to, you know, say that they adhere to this and then go their separate way. That doesn't work. Yeah. The model is they're almost going to move in with me. Yeah. You know, that, that like this isn't this isn't just this. You preach once and use an illustration of somebody joining a coming out of a motorcycle gang to join church and like. You know, the, the analogy goes, this guy left the motorcycle game, he joined church, and then six months later he goes, this isn't what I signed up for. Like, I've never even e- eaten at anybody's house before. Yeah. Like, I'm totally disconnected. Like, my motorcycle gang seemed a lot more like the family. culture family of Jesus than what the church is giving me right now. Yeah, and so, like what we had in the, in the Antioch model, the apostle would go, they would plant a church. They would show them what it looks like to live as a family for five or six months, and they would leave them to live as a family. And this is interesting because in the Old Testament, you were very careful who you let into the family. And so you'll notice in the line of Christ, there actually are at least three Gentiles in the genealogy of Christ. Yes. And so you read this, there's Gentiles, but they were carefully let in. It wasn't a mass evangelization. Now, Perhaps it was supposed to get there that all the world would eventually be grafted into the family and maybe we're still going to get there. I certainly don't see that within my lifetime, but, you know, God can do amazing things. And so, you know, what does it look like? There is a carefulness in who you invite into your life because there's this is sacred defilement language, too. And so in an Old Testament sense, you didn't want to invite something that could be uh, defile or lead to sin in your camp. Everything in your family was to be sacred before the Lord. And so today, this also chimes into this idea of evangelism on a Sunday morning, that we're going to try to preach to the 1% every Sunday of the people that aren't saved, when the context is actually not to do that. The context is you can have those discussions with people outside of your family gathering, but the family is sacred. Until yeah. until they've made decisions to be part of that intimate family, there actually isn't a place for them within the family until they've, in their heart, mind, and soul, crossed the line. Yep. And so I believe that after like that five or six months, then an apostle would be there, would, um, would communicate what it looked like to and demonstrate and we went out live it out yeah Yeah, we went through this with the letter deliverers of the letters of revelation yep and this is they were probably apostles yeah they're gonna come they're gonna deliver the letter they're gonna sit there and watch and make sure people get it right for six months they're gonna example live it out by example they're going to mentor they're going to shepherd for six months and then go do it again and then they're gonna come back and make sure yeah later months to two more years after and we saw this with paul he would come back Six months to two years after he planted a church and then reckon, recognize elders yeah. at that time. 
Um, so I believe Roland Allen absolutely like he nails it. Like yeah. he nails this. Like yeah. he um, and he says this. The facts are Paul preached in a place for five or six months and then left behind him the church, um, not indeed free from the need of guidance, but capable of growth and expansion. The question before us is how he could train his converts as to be able to leave them in such a short amount of time with any security that he would be able that they would be able to stand and grow it seems at first sight almost incredible what he, what could he have taught them in five or six months i believe the answer is that christ is the head yeah so what what roland allen is alluding to astutely is that that this is almost impossible without the holy spirit yeah you know that you that, that we couldn't expect for people to get past kindergarten jesus sanity christianity the holy spirit without the holy spirit but you put the holy spirit in and it just happens and so matt and i go back and forth because paul spent 14 years in training and that seems to be kind of the number in the bible that people spent training and so what this shows us is that within a few months people could be left on their own but there's also one thing i want to point out now some of this is just my own personal thoughts, but a lot of it is rooted in the Bible. What we get is a picture that within this tight family mindset, that they weren't doing anything else, mm -hmm. that they weren't working for another system or anything else. Like when you left and you came in, what did Jesus say? When you're looking at the Jesus life, leave it all behind. Don't go fishing anymore. <laughs> don't, don't go back. Like this is again, my definition of discipleship. Every other disciple works for the rabbi the first part of the week and then goes back to work the second part of the week. But you are going to be different. You're not going to go back and fish anymore. You're not going back to the way of the world. You're going to be totally immersed in mind. And when we get these um, models and acts, that's actually what it looks like. That the whole family gets completely on board. Now, that doesn't mean that they might not make tents or sell clothes or something like that, but yeah. the mindset is that they're all in totally for this. So now, if I'm going to take a family and I'm going to take them to discipleship training school, and so for the next six months, the whole family comes and eats three meals at my table, and what we do all day, seven days a week, is we train a Jesus culture it becomes much more attainable, especially when you insert the Holy Spirit into that model. Yep. All right, so let's move on to the Ephesian model. So this is the third model. So later in Paul's ministry, he traveled to Ephesus. He planted about eight churches in that area. He was in, busy. In seven <laughs> years' time. So Ephesus kind of became the training center for people who would go forth then after that and plant churches. Yeah, so kind of what we would consider the missionary alliance of the world. Yeah, the seminary yeah. Of, yeah. of the early church. So Acts 19, verse 9, we see Paul using what's called the Hall of Tyrannus, um, which is in Ephesus, and he rented it for two years, and he taught there every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Yep. Five hours a day. And so this was, in Judaic thinking, this is the or of your day. This is the most important part of your day. And so we think differently. We think when we wake up in the morning that we're gonna, that's the best part of my day. So I, I'm a, a little bit of an author and I always say that I gotta, when I wake up at five and I spend three hours before my family even gets out of bed, that's the best part of my day. But in more Hebraic thinking, the middle part of the day was the best part of the day. And the reason is, is because you would have woken up in the Shema and started off your day praying right, and then you'd come back to that 
by the evening and there's an idea in every evening that that's that's going to be kind of the closing of the day and so this middle part of the day is when you are tracking most spiritually and so that's the time that paul would typically teach it's just kind of an interesting thing yeah 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 so if we kind of like examine the data from those who worked with paul we can kind of and frank viola and many other authors kind of think that paul had about eight people who he was teaching here to be apostles, not yeah. to be pastors, right. to be apostles, to go plant churches. So those men were Titus of Antioch, Timothy of Lystra, you probably know those two names from the New Testament, uh, Gaius of Derbe, um, Aristarchus of Thessalonia, um, Securius of Thessalonica, so Peter of Berea, Titicus of Ephesus, uh, Traphonitis of Ephesus, and Ephesus. Epaphroditus of Colossae. Glad I didn't have to say all those. So, F.F. <laughs> Bruce is going to summarize what we just kind of went through as the Ephesians model, and he puts it pretty eloquently, so this is what he says. To this great city, then, Paul came and stayed there for the best part of three years, directing the evangelization of Ephesus itself and of the province as a whole. Plainly, he was assisted in this work by a number of colleagues, like Epaphras, who evangelized the Phrygian cities of the Lycus Valley, which is Colossae, Laodicea, Heropolis. And so effectively did they work that, as Luke puts it, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, even in F.F. Bruce's paragraph, you you could read that with our modern churchianity view. Yeah, evangelical. Now, I'm going to say that's not the way F.F. <laughs> Bruce wrote it. Mm -hmm. I, I like a lot of F.F. Bruce's stuff. And F.F. Bruce is writing this. When he uses the word evangelization, he's talking about bringing people into this way of life. Yep. It's this the journey. The journey, the family understanding of it. It's not the steps of salvation or Romans Road understanding. And so... What we're talking about here and what F.F. Bruce is getting to is that it's it's grafting into the family. Mm -hmm. So we get a picture of this in the Old Testament and the New Testament doesn't differ from yeah. that very much. And so I hear people say all the time, oh, I'm glad we're not Israel anymore because that was, you know, just for Israel. Well, it was for everybody else, but it was carefully bringing them in. And mm -hmm. so that's the model of if you want to call it evangelization that we get is carefully bringing it in sowing the seeds but they have to be into a christ-like discipleship model it's not bringing them in to continue the ways of the world in the church that's defilement yep. that's not what it was talking about yeah so a few things we need to note about the ephesian model is all eight men were present with paul in his stay in ephesus and apprenticed him this is the same model that Jesus and the disciples had. Yeah. Um, next, Paul trained them for five hours a day for two to three years. Now, this is worth saying. So this is showing us that this isn't just, hey, come be part of my family, that you know, you're going to watch my example as I go to work or whatever. This is actually making a model that every day... We're supposed to, I mean, I believe these are essentially church training sessions. You know, what, what we talk about Sunday school today, and, and they're spending every day for four or five hours, maybe six hours doing this. I think most of America, this is really important. So just, if you haven't heard anything else, listen to this. American evangelical Christianity, and likely the rest of the world, can't do this for two hours a week. 
the model we're given isn't just two hours a week. Five hours a day. It's five hours a day. And so if we wonder why we're stuck in Christian, you know, kindergarten Christianity as a whole of the church in America, this is likely the problem, is that the model we've been given was five or six hours a day of hardcore teaching, preaching, seminary-style yeah. training. We might have that get one hour a week on Sunday morning. But then there was the rest of life, too. And so, so it's the whole thing, and I don't even know that, I, I say sometimes, like, we do get pictures of closer discipleships where we might get people that are looking like an apostle or discipleship today, but we certainly don't seem to have whole communities of people living in this kind of discipleship. So mm -hmm. I, I love our little micro church, and I'm actually going to put Steve Castle's church on a pedestal down there and say they're getting really close to this. Um, they've started Bible schools in their church and all kinds of stuff. But but still, even the best of what we have, the best apostles, disciples by the biblical definition, the best Jesus communities we have, they're so far away from this model of Ephesus. Yep. And so the next thing we have in Acts 20, verse 34, we have that Paul paid for his own needs and the needs of these eight men when they were going through school. So how does Paul do that? How does Paul finance the needs of eight men? So in our understanding, we want to give money to a church, which kind of is supposed to be caring for some people teaching and preaching. That's what some of the money yeah. in the church goes. It's also going to go for benevolence, mm -hmm. the poor, the needy, although I always tongue-in-cheek joke our government's doing a better job than our church is with that. And uh, I don't even like our government. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and and then they're also going to be out there looking for different needs. But when, when you frame all this down, it's really interesting if you say, when I bring somebody in and I train them for four or five hours, that I also need to take care of their, their uh, livelihood. Well, we both work for a seminary, so what would that look for, like for seminaries today? be pretty interesting, yeah. isn't it? And so rather than people paying into a seminary, I love CTS in that mm -hmm. CTS has decided that they're not going to let money stand in the way of training yes. a discipleship culture. Like, if you mm -hmm. want to go to CTS and you literally don't have any money to bring to the table, you can still go to CTS. Yeah, they'll work with you. And I love that about CTS, but what, I, what would I love more? I would love if CTS says, hey, if you're accepted into the program to be all in, we're going to pay for you and your family for the next yeah. four years. That would be amazing. Yeah. I went to Trinity for my undergrad, and they were extremely generous in the, the way that they helped me through that. I mean, obviously, they didn't pay my bills for year, <laughs> years, but they were extremely generous also in my undergrad for um, allowing me to go through that at like, a very affordable rate. So, yeah. I mean, CTS, Trinity, they're on the right track. Yeah. Um, I think that obviously if we're following Paul's model from Ephesus that the seminaries would maybe be paying for the people to go there yeah. so that they could go out and plant these type of communities. Yeah. It's really interesting though when you when you think of somebody going into training, we don't think this way, but how amazing would it be if somebody was ready to get into the four or five hours of training a day and a lot of our CTS students are doing that. They're spending four or five hours a day. So we're, when we say we're creating a discipleship culture, this is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so they're into four or five hours a day. How amazing would it be if everybody from their small group, micro church, big church, just said, 
not only do we want you to pursue a discipleship culture in your life and with your family, but we want to enable it. And so we're going to pay, pay your bills. bills for the next four years. So you or can go do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the last point on this before we move on to the Roman model is um, Paul um, sent these guys out after this time. And F.F. Bruce and other scholars believe that they were the ones who planted the seven churches of Revelation yeah. that we just went through. Yeah. That these eight guys here were part of the apostles who planted these churches and then would... Um, teach them for months the ways of Jesus, leave, and then go back to, and help pull up the weeds. And maybe some of these letters that were written were maybe to some of these apostles about the weeds that needed to be pulled up in these churches. So you might remember, I just like to connect theology because that's mm -hmm. what I do. You might remember when we were talking about it, and every one of these letters starts out with basically saying to the angel. And uh -huh. a lot of people want to make that the leader in charge. And uh -huh. I'm going to say... If that's what it was, they would have used the same word for apostle. If yeah. it was the same word for apostle, I would go, oh, now that kind of makes sense. But when it doesn't use it, it uses more of an angelic word for that. That's where we kind of go back. And again, this isn't a big deal, but yeah. I just want to connect it. But it's it. not the single church pastor. Right. That's why we say, yeah, we don't think it's a single church pastor because there's better words to use mm -hmm. if that's what they would have meant. Yep. All right, so let's move on to the Roman model. This is our fourth model. Um, so Romans 1.13 shows that Paul never visited Rome, yet he was writing to a church there. So this is interesting because it looks like what he is doing is shepherding from afar with Rome. And so as an apostle, is it possible to shepherd from long distance? Now, today we do this all the time. In fact, most of CTS is online. That's what we're doing. Yeah. We're shepherding from afar and a lot of our churches are online today. Yep. You know, I, I hear some people say that they post-COVID now have more people interacting in their church services online than they do in person, which I don't particularly yeah, like. Yeah. But <laughs> but that's that's kind of going into this. So is this a model way back when, before the internet and all this, where you could actually shepherd from afar? Let's find out. Yeah, so Romans 16, we have 26 individuals there, about five households, most scholars say that Paul addressed by name and why is this if he was not connected or hadn't visited this church so what it seems is that people from the church in Ephesus such as Prisca and Aquila and Junia um, you know the women can be apostles too <laughs> yeah. so they, it seems that they moved to Rome after the edict of Claudius in 49 AD and they ended up planting a church there so Romans 16 shows us Junia was prominent, a prominent apostle. Yeah, yeah. She was one who was planting churches. And so in Romans, Paul is writing to Rome, but he's writing to people that he's already worked with, probably from Ephesus, from this time that he was there. Um, and they moved to Rome to plant house churches. So this is interesting. Let me just break this down. When we look at the picture of Rome, what we're getting is we're getting some of these other models that Paul had gone into, and the people in the models continued to branch out. And so what you see is a little bit of a multiplicity or dominoes effect that the seeds that were planted, that Paul planted in these people, took their three, which turned into 12, which turned into 72, and then it turned into Rome. Yeah, and then they sent. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's not a lot of sticking around in these models it's, it seems like you're going to make it within about a four-year time you're off to another place so notice if paul was to come back to ephesus would he find junia there maybe not not after four years 
she you, might be she an might be yeah. And so that sounds really quick. We still think of four-year Christians as baby Christians stuck in their kindergarten Christianity. But when you're when Learning you're five hours a day, <laughs> five hours a day, four years, you get a lot done. And yep. so this is why you hear some some of our good friends, and I don't really want to put any names here. Don't really think much of seminaries today. And I don't blame them for not thinking much mm -hmm. of seminaries. I think they have Most some seminaries are not very good. good reasons to go that way. But one of the reasons why Matt and I are still very much involved in seminary training is because we see during this four years that this is the model that we've been given. And today, the only, this is unfortunate to me, but today the only place that seems to take on this model of core discipleship is a seminary. Mm -hmm. It's lost everywhere else. And so home churches are great, but our people across America in the best home churches studying for four to five hours a day and then immersed in life and culture with everybody else? The answer is no. Where do you find that? You find it really only in America in seminaries. Yeah, or maybe Mennonite or Amish communities, yeah. potentially. But um, but getting back to the Romans model, Paul is pretty clear in Romans 15:20 that he will not build on another person's foundation. So he didn't plant the church in Rome, but he's responsible for the people that he helped disciple. Yeah. So he obviously it seems like he discipled these people in Ephesus or somewhere else along his journey. So either people all from Ephesus went to Rome or people from different communities that he had planted gathered together and then went to Rome and all of these people he had already worked with and that's why Paul can speak into their life yep. in Romans 16 and he recognizes them as leaders and apostles and so the Roman model is that people from one or multiple areas move into one area to plant a church community yeah that's what it looks like so let's just summarize the models we kind of went through each one of them these are the these are really the uh, four main models in the Bible that yeah. we get there are there are other things where we get it, but I, I think all of them are going to be somewhat in these models. So let's just go through them again, Jerusalem model. Yeah, so the, the apostolic workers spend years raising up one, I guess, large church, yeah. maybe multiple house churches. That, large as in that, 70. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it happens over a number of years, and the church is maybe plant, transplanted into different cities as it, as it grows, and thus creating many new churches. Uh, the workers visit those new churches and lay fresh foundations for them is kind of what we see there. Antioch model, again, I'm almost going to sound like a broken record because it's very similar. So you get the apostolic workers are sent out. You'll notice all four of these, we're going to have people sent out. The apostolic workers are sent out from a local church. They plant new churches in new cities. The workers leave those churches and, and kind of come back, and, and then you kind of get checkups, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging them as they mature. Yeah, so, and then in the Ephesian model, you get a mature, older worker who resides in a specific city um, where he plants a local church, and in that local church, um, you have younger workers who study under that person to become apostles. Then those workers are sent out to plant new churches in nearby regions, and they eventually take on the model of that older worker who poured into them. Now, the Roman model varies slightly. It's going to sound exactly the same as the other three, but it varies slightly because what you have, and you might not have gotten this when we went through it, is that you have different people from seeds of other churches that were planted, and they all land in the same place. And so that would be like if today I were going to 
goes start a, a, we live in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is southeastern Wisconsin, and I was going to move 45 minutes away to go to Watertown, Wisconsin, and start a church there. And to help me, I might invite somebody from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or to Madison. land over here, or Madison, and say, hey, I'm coming to this community, would you come and help me, and then we're going to start this way of life in Jesus for that. Yeah. Yep, and so those are the, the four models, the Jerusalem, the Antioch, the Ephesian, and the Roman model. And those are the four models that of apostolic church planting that we see in the New Testament. So when you ask how was this accomplished, the answer is the unity of the body. We mm -hmm. call this teamwork today, but it was, it was those with slightly different giftings that might have a core gifting of apostleship, but inviting those with several other gifts to kind of be part of the team, and it typically starts in these twos, 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 and uh, and the Torah was really quite clear, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the legal system or really getting anything done, it's almost always, if you read the Torah, it's almost always in twos, and that's why we have this 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 uh, husband-wife thing in marriage, because that's that's the twos, twos that yeah. is the best picture of it, so... Um, that's kind of referred to as the Shnayadim in the Old Testament is two is always better than one. We know that, but we don't necessarily live by it. And so one of the reasons why Matt and I are co-hosts is because two, two is, is better than one. Yeah. We might invite a third or a fourth person occasionally onto this, but it's very rare. It happens occasionally, but it's very rare where Matt does a video. He did a series on uh, Citizens, of the, Citizens of the Kingdom. I've done a couple little videos yeah. by myself. But that's not our ideal preference. Our preference is yeah, two, two is better than one together. This is our team. And so when you look at the Torah or you look at the New Testament, I would say they're very much connected. So let's just look at some. This might be new to some people or sometimes people understand that two is better than one. But they don't necessarily see that the scripture is more than just suggesting this, but it's actually pretty command-oriented or prolific mm -hmm. about the two. So where do we get that? Yeah, so the 12 apostles uh, were sent out in pairs in Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4. And if you just watch the latest series of The Chosen in theaters, they emphasize that, in yeah. it, which I really appreciated. Yeah, and then Jesus sent out the 12 in pairs on a trial, basically, mission in Mark chapter 6 as well. Yeah. Field assignment. So you, you get this idea that the church hits 72 with Jesus. So mm -hmm. he's got this core 72. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to send you out in, in pairs. And what it looks like is a field assignment because he's still training his 72. Mm -hmm. But what he's doing is he's setting the tone for right now I'm sending you out for a field assignment. But not long from now, I'm going to actually send you out to expand the church. Yeah. yeah. Get ready. Yeah. So after that, we've got the 12, kind of minus Judas. They're listed in pairs, and um, when Luke mentions them in the upper room, and that's in Acts 1.13. And this is one of the reasons why I love the way Luke goes into the upper room, because he keeps them in those pairs, which is really interesting. And again, you're going to get that portion of Luke in the last Chosen episode, mm -hmm. too, if you watch it carefully. Hardly anybody probably picked up on that other than me, but I went, oh, they read Luke when they when they got to that. Yeah. So. Um, after that, the Lord sent out pairs of his disciples to fulfill some tasks. You have that in Matthew 21, verse 1, Luke 22, verse 8. Yep. Um, after that, you have Peter and John working together as a pair. And Paul and Barnabas after that. Yep. And you're going to get Barnabas and Mark, and then Paul and Silas, and then... 
Paul sent off pairs after that. And so you always get this pairs model, and it's interesting to point out that sometimes the pairs switched. Yeah. And I think oftentimes with Jesus that happened. Yeah, and even in um, if you look at Paul, we were just talking about the uh, Ephesian model. He had eight and even numbers. So yeah. There's pairs there too. Now what's really interesting is when you're talking about these pairs, I want you to pick up on something. There's always, when you see the, the connotation of sending out apostleship in pairs, there's a term that's kind of referred to as the work. And you see this in Paul. And you probably never notice this, but now once you, once, you see, it, you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're <laughs> going to see it everywhere. So when it's talking about the worker and the work, what is he talking about? Yeah, so the worker was one of Jesus' favorite terms in the gospel. You get that in Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Um, Matthew 20, verses 1 and 2, Luke 10, verses 2 and 7. And Paul also used this a lot in his letters in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, 11, 13, Colossians 4, 11. Luke refers to it as planting and nurturing of congregations, so not buildings. Now you might notice the reference with Luke of keep and cultivate. So when yep. he uses the New Testament words of planting and nurturing, that's work. a direct Hebrew uh, reflection of back to the work of the Garden of Eden to keep and cultivate, which is what we do as a royal priesthood of believers. And so it's very interesting to see that the plan at the beginning of the Garden and with Israel and the Levitical priesthood and now to the church in general isn't changing. The verbiage is the same. Yeah, um, so when we look at Acts 13, verse 2, we see that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul, so two there, for the work that I have called them to do. Yeah. yeah. After that, we got Acts 14, 26. We have Attilia uh, that um, sailed back to Antioch um, while they were there, committed to the grace of God for the work that they had to accomplish. Yeah. So this keeps going. You're going to kind of, you're going to notice again, once you see this, you can't get away with it, but there's always this word of work. And I, I want to just be careful um, because when you see the work, I don't want you to take our worldly connotation of work. work so yeah. when we say work, what we're talking about is the biblical term toil. Mm -hmm. And so today, if I say, hey, it's time to go to work at my 50 hour a week job that takes me away from God rather than closer to God, we're not talking about the biblical definition that all these authors are using of work. The biblical definition is to keep and cultivate in the garden. That's what they did. They walked with God in intimacy. That's what we're talking about when we talk about work. What today when we say work, the biblical definition of what you do for 50 hours wasting away is toiling. And I know that comes off really strong. Some of us still have to work and I understand that but the idea is that we get away from the ways of the world yeah. and we more into the ways of God go more into the ways of God yeah, yeah so uh, Acts 15 38 says that Paul did not think it wise to take him um, but he had because he had deserted him I believe he's talking about Demas there yep. and um, but he he had not continued with them in the work yeah so what it's what it's what the illusion is is that some people were charged as apostles to do the work and they fell short Yeah, they went after the world and so what paul says is we're not bringing them anymore yeah they're, they're not part of this anymore and this is again it's defilement language what we're calling is people to walk intimately with the lord keeping and cultivating and if they step away from that role 
we no longer have time for them. So I hate to say this, but if Paul was in our churches today, he would say that he pretty much doesn't have time for anybody in our church. He would leave them because they haven't been doing the work. Mm -hmm. That's strong language, but I, I think it's important to pick up on that, that those, I, we always want to gauge of how are we mm -hmm. doing. And this is a gauge moment. This is where Paul is saying, this is somebody that stopped doing the work or the four to five hours of the middle of the day as well as the rest of the day, and I'm not bringing them along anymore. Yep. Um, so I think that New Testament scholar Robert Banks sums this up pretty well. Um, and he says, these two, the church and the work, should never be confused. They generally have been in subsequent Christian thinking. Paul views his missionary operation not as an ecclesia, but rather as something existing independent alongside the scattered Christian communities. The, the works proposed in the first preaching of the gospel and the foundation of the church, and then the provision of the assistance so that they may reach maturity. So what he's making, what, what Banks is trying to show is that there's, there's apostleship going on, and then there's nurturing of shepherding of those being brought into the community, and he's separating those mm -hmm. two. And so, so you might have a seminary, which is training, and in my mind, it's training those that, are, those that are going to continue shepherding others, but the whole community is also busy. Mm -hmm. And so you have some that are you know, kind of doing the work according to banks, and then you have others that are just living, living out the life, the Jesus culture life, yeah. so to speak. And maybe they're connected, maybe they're not. So banks kind of separates those two, and I can see a place for that. I can also see a place for we're all called to the same thing. And again, I, I'm careful to kind of put hierarchy in there, but I do like it when people say I'm going to I'm going to branch away from this, and I'm just going to be totally given to it. Yeah, Watchman Nee says something similar. It says, in the will of God, the church and the work follow two distinct lines. The work belongs to the apostles, while the church belongs to the local believers. The apostles are responsible for the work in any place, and the church is responsible for all the children of God there. Gotcha. So what Nee separates is very similar to Banks in saying that church planting or going out is call a calling to the apostles and so if you've got the gifting of the apostleship you're being sent yeah. out where every other gifting is going to be to kind of continue the church itself at that place and yeah. I'd agree with that I think that's yeah. a good statement so there is a uh, there is a Hebrew takeoff of this, and so you might be familiar with Asa in the Old Testament, and it's all over uh, some of David's writing, but that's what that's what this cultivate and keep language typically takes the form of in Hebrew, and it's this idea that you're working with a purpose, that you have a strategic mindset, and so I believe when Paul is using work, because he's always thinking Hebraically, the word asa is what comes into his idea of work with purpose. That back in the garden or in the Israelite camp, when they were when they took on the idea of keeping cultivating the priestly language, this was very strategic. And that's why it's interesting in Acts 15 that he says he's not bringing those with anymore that didn't do a good job in that area. They, in, in a sense, he's almost saying like they can stay and be part of the giftings of the church in that area. But, the, but they're not but, coming to plant. But new they're ones. not coming to plant new ones. They're not the sent out ones at that yeah, point. Yeah, they're they're not. They've proven that they can't establish the culture there, so they need to stay and learn the culture. <laughs> so there's there's a lot hinging on the definition of sent out. So when we're talking about apostleship, what the biblical definition is: those that are sent out to travel along 
and specifically train or shepherd the shepherds. And we even get this idea that they're training the ones that are also going to continue to do that. So there's a whole contingency of the church that might not be called in that gifting area, but those that are are going to be trained and continue to be spread out. Yeah, so we've got some of this. We've got... um... So the sent one is usually the one who's sent out to declare the gospel of the kingdom. And they are stewards of the message of Jesus' kingship. Uh, they're to be a living witness, as we said, to the message. And out of that message and their living witness, they're to, commu- they're to plant communi- communities that are, that are under that. Yep. Um, we got Mark 3.14. We have Jesus saying that he ordained the twelve that they should be with him and that they might send them to preach yeah you also get that in first corinthians 1 17 it says christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel so baptism is important and this is that evangelism mindset that we sometimes kind of debate about it's important allegiance to god's kingdom but those that are sent are out preaching proselytizing uh so we got romans 10 15 it says how should um how shall they preach except that they be sent as it is written, beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and bring the good tidings of the glad tidings of good things. Yeah. And then Ephesians, this is again where we kind of get some of the Ephesus language that we talked about earlier. It says, Unto me, who am I less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created by all things Jesus Christ. And so this is kind of a point where he's saying, who am I that I should be one of those that goes out sent mm-hmm. to to begin this yeah, Jesus culture? Humility. Yeah. yeah. Not, not a sense of office or right. hierarchy. And we'll get into office here yeah. as we close in a little bit. And for me, the utterance which was given to me that I may open my mouth to make known the mysteries of the gospel. That's also Ephesians chapter 6. Yep. And then we got Colossians chapter 4 praying for us that God would open to us the door of utterance and speak the mysteries of Christ, which uh, I am in bonds. So when you talk about preaching, almost all these words here, again, in our modern understanding, we want to take this as a sermon. Sermon, yeah, 40-minute monologue. We're going to church to hear the 40-minute monologue, and that's not at all what they're talking about here. So what they're talking about here is is the message of the kingdom of God and how to live in this total Jesus culture discipleship. And it took more than 45 minutes a week. It took five to six hours a day. day. Yeah. So one of the main works of an apostle was to impart the Lord's vision to his body and into the congregation. And when they were living it, he would leave them to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, here you go. He would stand up there every week and preach a 40-minute monologue to them every Sunday. Right, right. He would explain to them the mysteries of the gospel and call them into the life of the Holy Spirit and then leave them. Yeah, yeah. So we get into being equipped, and this is really um, what CTS does. Is I, I keep going back to CTS just because, again, this is, like, this is why Matt and I are involved yeah. in CTS because this is the model. And so... I I want it to be really careful that we hardly talk about CTS on the rest of the videos, but this Mm -hmm. is why Matt and I are so emerged into CTS because it's the best picture of this. And so by definition of today, what are we doing? We're equipping. Yeah. It's a biblical word. Yeah. So the the word equip actually is in Ephesians 4.12, um, karatismos, which 
is used as a noun only once in the Bible, and that's here. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so it has an interesting history in classical Greek. So to equip in classical Greek was to put a bone right in relationship with the rest of the members of the human body so that every part fits together properly and works according to its purpose. And that's what apostleship does. So this is interesting. If you know me at all, you know I have a lot of squirrel moments. Like I can never sit through a sermon. I get stuck on the first verse. I like get on the first verse and I'm there for the next hour of just mm -hmm. overturning it. And so when we're researching this, I got into the court of three strands. And so I just wrote an article on Expedition 44. There's a lot of articles there. So you might not be aware of that that you can go and read. And and they're, they're typically things that are we uncover when we're researching for this and we're like, well, I don't want to leave that undone, but it doesn't quite fit the video, so I'm going to write about it. So mm -hmm. Matt and I write quite a few on there. And this is one of the little squirrel moments I had was getting onto the cord of three strands is that it's supposed to be fit together. And so the Greek word here is a, a combination of kata and arkeos. And what it, what it means is that these are things that are fitted and formed together. It kind of takes on that holy, complete idea. That's the word we often interpret as perfect that we talk mm -hmm. about Jesus, a fully given all in. Yep. But it's formed and fit. And so this goes back to more Old Testament Hebraic thinking is that when they built the temple, you may not know this, when they built the temple, there weren't any fasteners used. It was that every single thing was formed, was formed around each other. And so this whole temple was like a big boy lego project basically that was perfectly fit together and it was supposed to be kind of a mosaic of what the body of what, what christ would be and so now later after the temple kind of started that foundational thinking paul is is taking that same thought and saying that's what the body of christ is that when we equipped what we're doing is we're training according to the giftings that each gifting is going to permeate the church so that we're interlocked in this just beautiful amazing foundational way and sometimes that takes like the stones of the temple rubbing against one another <laughs> to, to fit <laughs> right. better together right <laughs> so sometimes it could take some friction yeah a little settling <laughs> yep. so to speak yep. yep so um let's move on to kind of our last thing here um before we wrap up in a little bit is about office of apostleship or the notion of the office of apostleship the, the question is this is this an office does it truly have authority over churches or must one have some sort of apostolic covering if they are a church so in previous episodes we've addressed the idea of authority and covering in the beginning of this we implied a lot of the mm -hmm. conversation that we're just getting down to so when you come down to it, do you need kind of a, an umbrella or denominational idea ahead of you? And so the problem with this conversation, Matt, is that we're trying to interpret it according to the way that we do church today. And so mm -hmm. the first thing that you need to do is step out of the way that we're doing it, which I kind of have to just say likely isn't right. It's a little misguided. Mm -hmm. And when you take the biblical idea of these apostles sent to plant family idea of coming in then you say what does what what does a covering look like and did they have an office which had some kind of authority given to it yeah so paul didn't necessarily lord over the churches that he planted but he wanted to persuade them of the truth of the gospel the truth of god's will and so paul's two favorite words for this concept were parakalian and otorito 
And these words are not imperial edicts, which mean to, you know, make... But they, they mean to make an appeal or a, a request between equals. I love that second definition of Yeah, it, and so both those which. words mean that. So the first one was to make an appeal. So to try to persuade somebody by the truth. Yeah. And the other one was um, a request between two people that were on equal footing. This is not, uh, biblically, we'd call what is an epitage or a commandment. So this is not necessarily a thus saith the yeah, Lord charge to obedience. Yeah. So some of this, when you get this language, this is kind of where we get that Paul had some of his own, as every writer did, their own preconceived notions. And this is where, as theologians, we have to sometimes separate. Is this what mm -hmm. Paul thought, or is this what God was kind of saying inspired to the way that the churches would be? Yeah, and so some evidence of this um, we're going to put in the show notes. So if you look for this under Apostolic Office and our notes under here, we're going to put a whole bunch of verse references where you can see Paul using these words and this mindset of not lording authority over the of the congregations of the churches, but really just making an appeal to them or a request between him being an equal with his congregations. And I'm just going to say, when you see the list, it's it's a big list. There's a it's, lot of these. There's times. probably about twenty or thirty verses. But on the other hand, it's extremely rare. In fact, I think there's only, you know, less than five that you can really count where you kind of get a charge, a, mm -hmm. a, a more of a thus saith the Lord, a commandment language, paragello type of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of the object of obedience, I would say. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's very rare occasions. We'll put those in there, there also, but... Um, yeah, the basic thing that when he charges them is not to have obedience to him, but to have obedience to Christ, Christ himself. Yeah. Yeah. And those are all of the instances of obedience are to be not obedient to his teachings or to him, but obedience to Christ and his teachings. Yeah. So the best way that I would do this, and I've, I've done this with my four boys, is that I've looked at the way that Paul interacts with these churches and in, in, in his language, and it's kind of the capacity of a spiritual father-mother relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is why Matt and I always come back to these pictures of Christ-like culture, our family. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so so you get that quite a bit. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12 is a good example of this. You can also do 2 Corinthians 12, 14. But again, once you read it as a father talking to his children, you can't not see it. You're going to see that all over the yeah. hands of the writing of Paul. Yeah, and we can go through some of his letters here. So Paul in Galatians, he says that the church belongs to Christ twice, two yeah. times there, yeah. not to him. He says that the church belongs to the family of believers once, and he calls the church brethren 11 times. Yeah. And he describes himself even as a mother who has traveled to birth the church. Yeah. And then in First Thessalonians, Paul calls the church brethren 17 times. Again, that's family language. He says he treated the members of the father, treats his children, and he says that the gentle among them as a mother is with her children and so again huge family language so he's he's talking about the you know the gathering of people into this community and he's using family words that they're grafted into the family brothers sisters yep second thessalonians paul calls the church brethren or brothers and sisters it could be translated as seven times we probably get it the most in first corinthians i think that's kind of you know what most people kind of know the brotherly language mm -hmm. of but paul calls the church brethren 28 times he says the church belongs to god twice he says the church belongs to christ once he calls the members his children he says that he belongs to them he says he is the servant to them 
Boy, that's interesting. Father yeah. and mother language yeah. that we should so. serve our children. <laughs> he uses the imagery of the mother who fed with them milk. He says that he is their only father who gave them birth through the gospel. Second Corinthians is yeah. going to continue that. Yeah, see, Paul calls the church brethren eight times in Second Corinthians. He calls them the members of that church, his children. He says he is stored up for them as parents do for their children. He says that he is a father who will present the church to Christ as a chaste version. Um, he says that he is not Lord over them, but a helper of their joy. Pretty point blank. And then, you know, the rest of the letters, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, they all really use that brother in language, whether it be... A bunch of times. 14 times or two times. They're, they're yeah. all using the language, and so it's saying the same thing. So, Matt, as we come to this, I think what's important is that we see an apostle is one that is trained to be sent out and go start a Jesus culture here or there or something else to establish a culture where those are continually shepherding those underneath them. And one of our favorite people in this, in this world um, that kind of preaches this way, and I think it's unfortunate that uh, some people might even, that, that don't know him very well, might think he's anti-church when he's not. No, he's no. totally pro-church. Oh, um, yeah. But Frank Viola, he, he has so many books out there. He just actually posted on his Facebook uh, all the, and I didn't, I wasn't aware he's got that many books, but I think he's got 15 or 20 of them out there now. And they, Most of them deal with the church. Most of them deal with the church. And so he's got a, a quote that I think is probably worth reading. Yeah, it's pretty long, so... Well, we'll get into it. It says, there's no shortage of self-styled, self-appointed, um, uh, self-anointed, post-Pauline apostles running to and fro in the body of Christ today. Such people issue authoritarian decrees, claim followers, and build empires. As a result, many discerning Christians have concluded that apostles do not exist anymore. Let it be known, however, that God has raised up genuine apostolic workers in this century. Those are those who have walked and are walking in the Pauline spirit. Like Paul, these workers are not interested in building Christian empires nor starting movements. Neither do they have any interest in reaching celebrity status or protecting their legacies. He quotes 1 Corinthians 1.13, 3.7, and verse 21. So what's interesting is, is Frank, along with several others that we could say, have said that the role of the gifting apostle is not lost today but you're in large part probably not going to find them in normal churches today. Yeah. Well, and themselves calling that themselves by that name. And so there's an understanding that, and I got to be really careful here, and so I, I'm, I'm going to choose my words wisely, that, but there is an understanding that our evangelical American churches don't fit the models that have been given to us in the Bible. And they've so, got no room for the apostle. They've got no rooms. They, and as Frank would say, they've, they've kind of turned into you know, CEO, this or that or whatever, when when the description that we have is to send out seeds, to make the seed, to join from other congregations in doing that, to create Jesus cultures in those places and continue sending them out that way, our, our evangelical churches just don't really think that way. Yeah. Um, the church that we attend actually started another church seven years ago, yeah, I think, like that, yeah. helped to start this church. And that's the one model that they have. And so if, if I want to put them on a pedestal and they say, well, they're doing that or, or something like that, we can do that. But the problem is, is that it's 
it's one, mm -hmm. you know, at best it's one. I know some churches have maybe made two or three different churches, but the model just, it's so far off from what this says. And yeah. so you, you keep going and what you find is there are people that are wanting to bring others into a family culture and to train, but people aren't into that. They can't get out of the American paradigm or the American system to come to a place where they would train for five or six hours a day, leave everything on the beach to be a disciple of Jesus. That's almost unheard of today. Yeah. Um, so Frank continues this quote, and this this is from his um, book, Organic Church, um, where he talks about discipleship a lot. He says, what then... And this quote's a little longer, so yeah. bear with us. Yeah. Here. So what then does a contemporary apostle worker look like? If you are part of an institutional church scene, you may have never seen one. Yes, you are undoubtedly seen those who claim to be apostles at the very least you have heard of men who have had the word apostle wrapped around them by others yet such men frequently lack the good of the genuine worker by contrast authentic workers are those who hide themselves rather than hustle themselves their work is largely unseen their service frequently unnoticed real workers do not build denominations programs missions buildings or parachurch organizations they exclusively build the ecclesia of Jesus. And God uses the humble in heart to build his house, Isaiah 66, 1-2. What is more, they don't go around announcing themselves that they are apostles. In fact, there's a very good chance that they don't even like this term. And since they aren't part of the, the latest spiritual fads, you won't find them belonging to any organizational church or movement. You will normally find them in the Christian tabloid. You won't normally find them in the Christian tabloids. While they are less in number than the extravagant and the conspicuous super apostles of our time, true workers make deeper inroads towards God's eternal purpose in Christ. This is because they are building his church in his way, and this translates to the, the following simple prescription. Christians should be cognizant of their need for apostolic ministry, generous in their support of apostolic workers, yet conscious of those claiming to have apostolic status. So where do we land on all of this, Matt? I kind of want to bring it all in. What What is an apostle? An apostle is one that is sent out by a body, and he's going to plant the seeds to make a discipleship culture there and train others to continue the discipleship culture so that's an apostle as a sent out one there's a whole lot of other people that might have some may, might help occasionally in those apostolic pursuits or might be part of the training going on there and their other giftings but the apostle himself is the one that is sent out to make new seed planted jesus culture uh congregations and so those people even though their their main role would be to preach teach to new people in that way they're preaching and teaching the Jesus culture, and it's an it's a all-in, full-time type of thing. And that's why we're going to get to this in later ones. These are really the only people that are funded in the Bible. Mm -hmm. There isn't anybody else funded when you start looking at the different models that we're going to yep. get to. No one in the local church is paid. These are the ones that are fun funded, the ones that are going out and and taking the time to train and preach and teach. And so this is really interesting. And if you're looking at what an apostle is, it's an itinerant worker. Mm -hmm. It's somebody that plants 
congregations, body of believers, of those building a family Jesus culture. Yeah, they're ones who teach the church to live under the gospel, teach the gospel culture in that body. To be equipped to be servant leaders uh, in, in the humility of Christ. They're ones that leave the church functioning as an organic community. Yeah, that one's really important. Mm -hmm. And it's it's somebody that can might come back and is available for support, but they're not necessarily part of that congregation. They start it, they're there for a few months and they leave. They might come back to water and pull weeds, but they're not necessarily there the whole time like some of the other gifted people are. Yep, and so it's not an office in the church, but it's an essential function and a gifting to further the kingdom of God. Yeah. So in conclusion, I think when we look in an apostle, we don't really know a lot of people that are biblical apostles mm -hmm. today. We don't know a lot of people that go out just to plant churches and build organic Jesus community. Yet I'm going to come back and say it is actually one of the centrifugal callings of the Bible. The, the preeminent calling is the Great Commission to go and build Jesus culture of discipleship. And it's something that is kind of left undone these days. Yeah, it's one of, the, I think, the biggest things lacking in the Western church is the, the, the person who has the gifting of the apostle or the recognition of those who have that. Yeah. So, apostolos. What does that mean to you? It has a nice kind of ring to it, but it means somebody that's been called, commissioned, sent to go build Jesus culture. And we all have some of this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I said, my, my gifting might be down here, it might be off the charts up here, but we all have this gift. And so we're all functioning in some way as those that are sent to proclaim the Jesus culture, but then those that are perhaps more recognized from the biblical definition are those that have decided to be called in their life work to, to do their whole life for it. Yeah. So he calls and commissions all of us in one sense that we're all sent this way. So a healthy church is going to continually get more healthy because we're all creating the Jesus culture, which is the role of the apostle. But we're also going to be strategically as a major part of the church sending the apostles off to continue this work. And that is the part that I'm kind of falling back on with the evangelical church and Frank Viola would mm -hmm. agree saying like most people that go to an evangelical church don't know somebody that fits the definition yeah. of an apostle. Yeah, we have a, I think we have a few pictures of it maybe in, in the U.S. right now. Tampa Underground, KC Underground have some of, of those micro church apostolic um, type things going on they might not do it perfectly but at least they're trying to walk that out yeah. uh, frank viola has planted a, a few yep. churches he's got apostolic thing, but we don't have a whole lot of that like you said that that point of view in evangelicalism yep so if you think that you've got the gifting of an apostle you need to be preaching and teaching five or six hours a day, and you need to be looking for your three your places 12. where you can go plant your seed and start a Jesus culture. And everybody watching this film needs to be thinking about how you can contribute to the gifting of apostles and what you've been given and those around you that might even have a better gifting. How can you support them? Apostles are supported by the Jesus culture of the church. How can we continue doing that? Thanks for tuning in with us uh, next time. We'll dive into the next uh, of the fivefold giftings, which is the prophetic ministry. And so um, stay tuned.
Um, until I see you then, may God bless you and keep you.